what's for dinner is a common question around my house, and for dairy goat enthusiasts, it may also be a question when it comes to choosing the right forages and hays for your herd. On this week's episode of Goat Gab, Cameron and I are joined by special guest Dr. Rocky Lemus, who is the leader of the Center for Forage Management and Environmental Stewardship at the Mississippi State University. And he also happens to be a fellow dairy goat breeder. We hope you enjoy learning more about forages and pasture management with us this week. Welcome back, Goat Gabbers and myself, Cameron, um, to another exciting episode of Goat Gab. I'm back from vacation and ready to talk about some goats with Laura. Yep, we're glad you're back. I'm as always. I'm Laura Warren Hughes, one of your co-hosts, and uh, this week we are being joined by a very special guest. And Cameron, since you know Rocky better, I'll let you introduce him. Yes, uh, Mr. Rocky Limus. Uh, did I say that right, Rocky Limus? Limus. Mr. Rocky Limus from uh, Mississippi State Extension also known as the Mississippi Forages guy on the Facebook. Um, And I think he's just got a unique story. He went from Iowa, he graduated from Iowa State. So that's near and dear to my heart and always great to have another fellow alum. Rocky, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, kind of where you grew up and then what you're doing today and your position at Mississippi State? Yeah, thank you, Cameron. Thank you for having me on the program. And one thing that, you know, I, as a kid, I grew up actually on a, in a beef cattle farm uh, in Panama when I was a kid. And, you know, then we moved to the U.S. and and, and I've been here. I went to school, like you said, Iowa State. Uh, I interested in, in four years because I think, you know, when we look at it doesn't matter what livestock you have, one of the major investments is supplementation and having a forage program that is going to help you develop a long-term production and maintain those animals healthy and with the nutrition that they need is going to be very important. Like you said, uh, I got my undergraduate in master's in agronomy at Iowa State uh, University, and then I went to get my PhD at Virginia Tech in forage production. Uh, for the last 15 years, I, I have the privilege to serve as the extension for specialists uh, with the Mississippi State University Extension Service. Uh, I have a statewide responsibility working directly with uh, Mississippi livestock producers in helping them develop a more sustainable grazing system uh, to decrease their supplementation and also extend the, the grazing season. Uh, I also travel internationally, working with different organizations uh, to create adaptable grazing practices and ensure season production environments. Uh, beside my professional career, uh, also for the last five, uh, the last six years, along with uh, Mr. Scott Jenkins, we go on Coal Ridge Farm Nubians, which is located in Palmetto, Mississippi, Mississippi, and very soon home of the Coal Ridge Creamery. Uh, Scott started the herd in 2005 as the branch water herd in Western North Carolina. It transitioned to Coal Ridge in 2016. Uh, we maintain a small herd of about 20 goats and milk about 10 to 12 each year. We really enjoy showing, but our main investment centers around milking, uh, making cheese. As, um, as a hobby, Scott had been uh, making cheese since 2005. Uh, we are ADGA Plus members and enjoy participating in performing programs in hopes of improving the quality of our goats and the end product, which is milk. Uh, we are also members of the Mississippi Goat Association, 
and get involved in their shows and their performance programs. And with me having the expertise in four years in Grace and Sisters, and Scott having the experience in, in Go Production and commercial herd management, have made it possible for us to pursue establishing a small creamery operation. That is so fascinating. You really, you really have kind of done it all now. That's that's just amazing. Yeah, it, it's a great opportunity, and I think having not only the experience of four years, but actually working with the animals and be able to see what fits allows me to make better recommendation for uh, the uh, dairy gut industry, not only in the South, but I think across the U.S. as well. Uh, there is a we know that there is a big shortfall between the amount of food we produce today and the amount of needing to feed everyone in 2050. There will be about 10 million people on Earth by 2050, which means that we need to produce 60% more food to feed a world population. So the way we can feed such a large population is the far, is if it's the farming and the food industry become much more sustainable. So our farm may also serve as a hands-on learning hub for veterinary students uh, and other students involved in dairy or small ruminant production classes at Mississippi State University. So we hope to provide the tools and knowledge for the next generation of young farmers that want to pursue livestock production as part of their lives and health feeding the world as well. I love it that you're yeah. working with the university and, and exposing more people to dairy goats. I just Oh gosh, this this is just awesome. Yeah, I, I didn't know I didn't know this about you, Rocky. So I'm excited. Yeah, I think about this fall we have about five different classes from Mississippi State University that came to our farm, and the feedback that that we received from those those different classes has been phenomenal. So uh, we're excited to be part of this educational program, not only for for students at Mississippi State, but hopefully we'll be able to educate our younger generations too, the, uh, the elementary schools, the uh, secondary education students that allows, allows them to have a better understanding of agriculture and in the livestock management, so. That, that's Very awesome, cool. that's awesome. Uh, Laura, what's what's been happening on your farm this week here ever since you got done talking to Dr. Ed? <laughs> um, you know what? It's hard for me to believe. And, and when I talked to Dr. Ed last week, it was like unseasonably warm. Well, now we're back to a little bit more normal Christmas type weather. No snow, but, you know, frost on frost on the windshield. Had to break out the old heated hose this week. So um, it's kind of put me in the Christmas spirit. So I've been doing quite a bit of baking this weekend, which has been a lot of fun. Um and so I know that a lot of our listeners use an instant pot for their pasteurizer, or I've heard several people say that. So I just want to remind you that you can pull your instant pot this time of year and do amazing things like heating up chocolate for dipping chocolate candy <laughs> or proofing bread. If you're going to be making bread dough, um, I made some apple butter yesterday that, you know, usually if you make apple butter, it takes hours and hours and hours and Gosh, that magic instant pot makes it take about a half an hour and you've got yummy um, apple butter. So anyway, a non-goat thing, but just saying, don't forget you've got this handy tool that does more than pasteurized milk. So, <laughs> well, great. Um, yeah. And one other thing I wanted to sell, I, I know that last year around this time we did a um, 
Christmas wish list episode and we kind of talked about some cool gifts and um, I found something new and maybe this is not new to anybody else but me. Um, but I was ordering myself one of those really cool handy dandy heat lamps from Premier One that, you know, yeah. if it gets knocked off, it doesn't cause a fire. And they have a tube, a little tube feeder, specially made for sheep and goats. Have you seen this, Cameron? You mean like a little tube, like a, a tube feeder, like tubing them? Like if you have to tube them. And, you know, as, as a nurse, I've dropped OG and nasogastric tubes down human babies a lot. And it, I don't really think twice about doing that. But I've got to say, I've never tubed a goat because I'm just terrified of the thought that I'm going to pour a whole bunch of milk down into this kid's lungs and that's not going to be a good outcome, you know? So I just haven't done it. And they have this really neat little gravity feeder. So you're not pushing it with a syringe. It's, it's a gravity feeder that has a special tube on it that makes it very difficult to get into the wrong hole. So um, have you seen this or do you have any experience with this or you either Rocky, have you guys seen this thing? I've not seen it. I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it so, anyway, I just thought that was kind of a, a, a cool thing to, to look at. So, um, yeah. And uh, one other thing that I just kind of wanted to bring for some general chat. Um, I do listen to other pod- podcasts and one of my favorites is called Beyond the Ring. And I know I've mentioned that before, Cameron. I know that you have listened to it. Um, it's focused on... Um, livestock shows like uh, pigs, sheep, beef, cattle, and hogs. So, you know, they're looking at, at you know, mostly youth stock shows. And um, this topic this last week, they were talking about raising multiple animals. And it got on the topic of um, having different animals to please different judges that you know you're going to be showing under that year that, you know, you raise this type of animal for this judge and this type of animal for another judge. And I just thought that was kind of a fascinating thing because one of the co-hosts said that he has raised animals that he personally does not like, but he knows will win under a certain type of judge. And uh, it kind of got me thinking, I don't think we ever, or I hope we don't, I don't think we see that in the dairy goat industry. No, I feel like we breed goats for what we like. At least I do. And I think that's the important thing. And then the goal, we have to look at the goal of the ADGA Unified Scorecard. And it's and everyone is showing towards that goal, having a scorecard. Judges are supposed to be consistent. Yes, there are differences of opinions between judges as well. But um, there is a little bit of consistency there, I feel like. Um, but also, you know, we are humans and we can't always be super consistent at the same time. Well, and I, I think maybe that is what the difference is, is that I don't believe the other species of livestock have a scorecard that they uh, genuinely follow looking at looking across the breed. It's really just what that judge's opinion is based on maybe his years in the industry or his years selling or breeding cattle or whatever, or, or whatever species are looking at. But it just made me really thankful for the fact that we do have that unified scorecard because even though I think all of us as breeders have a different type or maybe a different goal in mind, that scorecard kind of keeps us pointing true North. I feel like, so I would agree. I I would agree with that a lot there. Um, On my farm here. Let's see here. Today was a little busy. I, I, 
I've been out and about because I was on vacation and then I went to Minnesota for work. Um, and it was snow actually as well. And I said, what the heck is this white stuff? Um, I've been only familiar with the beach, not, not snow recently. Um, but, uh, uh, rub it in, Cameron, rub it in. I have a nice little tan that'll be gone in about two weeks. Um, (laughs) uh, according to my, according to Dr. Ed, we're going to, we were going to have eight dry yearlings, um, on Thursday. But today, which we're recording on Sunday, we're now we're only going to have four. So I don't know how magically these goats got bred, but apparently that's that's what's happening here. I was going to talk about the woes of breeding season, but um, yeah, it's just crazy. We got some blood back on some goats. Um, we've got some goats that aren't bred that we thought were bred. So just dealing with a lot of that crap right now. Um, we got some hay today, and we're going to talk about hay a little bit more uh, here today. But we got some hay today, and it was beautiful. Um, but my dad – I'm teaching my dad how to use the skid steer to move the big bales. And I want to give him kudos because he did a great job with the first three bales. Um, the last bale, which we moved, um, he, he, you know, he had a little accident, but that's okay. We got through it. So he's doing a great job of learning new things today. Because you can never learn too much on the farm. Um, an accident meaning no humans or animals were hurt, but no, perhaps no, no, the no, bale no. was hurt? No, the bale – okay, so so our bales that we buy have four strings. And generally when you break a string, you're like, oh, you have to be a little bit more careful when you, when you move it there. It's only human nature to break a string. You're using a big mechanical piece of equipment to, to move you know, 750-pound bales. Pretty, pretty natural, and it happens. Um, he um, did not manage to break one string, but three of the four strings. Um, so we had to very carefully move that one in, and he did a good job of that. He didn't lose his cool. He was very calm, surprisingly, so very impressed with him um, today moving the big bales there, and he's going to have a lot more practice when I'm gone. Yes, he is. Well, well, very cool. I one thing I do want to say to the listeners here, and my dad had kind of teased it, and now that my fiance has announced it on Facebook, um, a formal announcement on the podcast here. I am moving. Um, I am leaving my farm and my dad um, and Kickapoo Valley Dairy Goats. Um, I will be moving to Wisconsin. I don't know where yet, but in Wisconsin, my fiance has accepted a job as an associate veterinarian up there. So I just want to let the listeners know um, that they might be getting some different content out of me, including moving goats. Now that that's official and I know where I'm going. So, But you're not leaving Goat Gab. Oh, I'm not leaving Goat Gab. No, I'll, I wouldn't drop that knowledge on you on an episode, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, you know what? I've had all kinds of surprises this weekend. So, you know, I'm just checking there. <laughs> Absolutely. Rocky, what's happening on your farm? Well, you know, camera. We beside the holly season this year already. We are very excited because uh, we are by the time that this airs, probably we're gonna be having kids already. We we are about to start kidding season. Our our first uh, dose are due on Thursday, and so I, I'm excited in the edge. You know, checking checking their their orders, making sure that everything is right and, and getting things ready for, for kidding season. I think uh, even though it's a lot of work, uh, kidding season is, is one of my favorite things. See those new babies coming into a world and, and, and feeding them for the first time and, and see how it starts to develop and grow. It's very exciting for me to 
to see those animals develop to their different stages until they, they become mature and are heard and, and, and become part of what we call our breeding improvement process. Baby Nubians are so adorable. They are unique, uh, their personality, you know, and that's one reason why uh, we, uh, we chose Nubians. We love their temperament and, and the components in milk with higher butterfat. But we also planning to incorporate an additional breed, which will be La Manches, because we feel like they work well with our environment. Since we are a small dairy, uh, we don't feel the need right now to introduce a heavy producing Swiss breed, uh, but that can change. But for now, Nubians is, is something that I'm really excited about and, and how, how well they, they develop. Very good. Yeah, I would imagine that the Nubians and then if you would add the La Manches, especially with the high components those two have, would be great for making cheese, right? I think so, you know, and that's one thing that that we 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 hoping to focus more and you know and and making different type of cheeses, uh, soft cheeses, uh, also each hearty cheeses such as Jack or Manchego, or some Bloomy Rhine cheeses similar to the Brie or Crotton. Awesome, awesome, Laura. Um, not a lot in the Adga world, but what do you want to remind the listeners of this week in the Adga world? Well, if you're like me and you're a little bit of a procrastinator, don't forget that you need to sign up. Well, first of all, don't forget you need to renew your ADGA uh, membership. And then don't forget it's time to sign up for linear appraisal, sign up for ADGA plus if you want to do that and uh, sign up for um, milk test if that's something that you want to do as well. I've had some people ask me, you know, is it even worth signing up for ADGA plus when I don't know for sure that... I'll get my linear appraisal date or maybe, you know, they know for sure their area is not going to do it. I would say yes. I think Adga Plus has a lot of things to offer just other than a discount on that. And especially the the DNA testing, you get a good discount with that. So, you know, really you can do the math, figure out what works for you. But um, Adga Plus, I think, is a really important program to consider signing up for. And it needs to be done before the end of the year. I agree with you. Uh, you know, we have been ADGA club members for, for several years now, and we see a lot of the benefits by uh, doing the DNA testing and participating in some of the programs. So so I, I highly encourage people that if if you are in that, making that decision, uh, I think you will see the benefit and, and the value of being ADGA club members. Absolutely. On that one, Kickapoo Valley is an ADGA Plus member. Um, not sure yet if the other herd will be. Taylor Ridge Farms will be ADGA Plus, but um, I do encourage uh, listeners that are interested in doing all three, please sign up. And again, remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, Laura, those LA fees, LA application fees will roll to the next year, correct? Yes, they will. And I know that too, because I've had that happen myself. You know, if, if for some reason they can't do you, it will roll over. The only way that you would lose them is if it is your decision to cancel and you decide not to go ahead and do it. Um, then, you know, it's like anything else. If it, if you decide to cancel it, then that's a reason um, that you won't get that feedback. Perfect. Awesome there. Well, moving right along here, uh, let's talk about forage considerations for dairy goats. And uh Again, something that I was really looking forward to in the kind of year two of Goat Gab was bringing on more people like Rocky to for us to learn, not only just myself, but for Laura and our listeners to learn 
about um, other things that we might not be the experts on. I know that I go buy hay and it hurts my pocketbook every single time, um, but I don't know a lot what's in that hay and I don't sure as heck know how to grow it at all. And that's why I'm excited to have Rocky on. I'm in the same boat. Hay is something that I spend a lot of money on. I can look at it and think, yeah, this doesn't look great. Or I can look at it and say, oh, this looks wonderful. Sometimes I can see how my does respond to the hay that I've purchased, you know, either either good or bad. But I really don't know anything other than, oh, there's grass hay around here and there's alfalfa hay of varying qualities. But I that's about all I know about hay. So I am so excited to learn today. Well, Rocky, jumping right in here, looking at hay and forage considerations here, how do we define what a good forage is for dairy goats specifically? You know, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, things about there when it comes to forages for dairy goats, either on a pasture or in a hay production system. And, and when you look at, at, at hay specifically, a lot of people tend to go by looking at just the color and the smell of the hay. And, and that's a, a small component that sometimes to, we have to take into consideration. But also we need to look at uh, the actual nutritive value of that hay. And it's very important that we also test our hay uh, for quality. So we need to know what the uh, protein levels is going to be for, for that uh, the type of goat that you're going to be feeding, uh, depending on the growth stage, if they are dry does or they're going to be in lactation. Uh, also, the, also, the crude protein values and energy, you're going to define that. So it's very important that uh, that you consider when looking at buying hay, for example, is uh, what I tell producers is if you're not sure about the hay, buy a small quantity of that hay. Uh, get it tested and then feed it to the animals before you decide to buy hay in, in, in large quantities that your animals are not going to be uh, consuming. Uh, because there could be uh, different nutritive values that those goats might be very picky about it. And, you know, from raising dairy goats, they can be very picky. The Nubians, for example, <laughs> sometimes we, we buy a couple of, of bales of hay and we take it to them. And they want to touch it. Even though it might be a high nutritional level, hey, uh, the smell, the uh, the uh, how it was being cured, uh, the palatability will have an impact on how they're gonna consume the hay. So, one thing that always we do is make sure that you take a hay sample and send it to for analysis to a certified lab. So you have an understanding of what your levels of protein are going to be, uh, what your energy levels are going to be. For example, if you have a doe that is in lactation and it's about 150 pounds, let's talk about a three-year-old doe and it's in lactation, that doe is going to require at least 71% uh, total digestible nutrients, which is energy on that hay, and about 11, about 128 11.8 to 12% protein. So knowing those values help you to determine if that hay meeting the nutrient requirements of the animal that I have. If not, then what kind of ration or supplementation do I need to develop to actually be able to supplement those needs of the animal that is in that type of uh, lactation and be able to produce the uh, milk expectation that we have or be able to develop those kids very well. 
So when we talk about testing the UHEI, uh, there are private and university forage analysis labs all over the U.S. Uh, they are certified by the National Forage Testing Association. Uh, and if you go to forestesting.org, you will be able to see which labs get certified every year. And you can choose one of those labs that might be close to your area. Uh, some of this lab might uh, do a, a hair analysis using what we call wet chemistry analysis. Others use what we call infrared, uh, near-infrared spectroscopy, uh, which is a non-destructive analysis of the sample to determine what the nutritional value of the hair being used and your operation might be. Uh, this information then can be compared with the nutrient requirements of the animal, like I mentioned before, uh, and then determine if there are deficiencies. If the forage alone is inadequate to meet the animal nutritional requirements, then a supplementation plan has to be developed to address, to address those needs as well. So, Rocky, let me make sure that I'm understanding this. <clears throat> um, you want to look at hay or your forage as the main as the main nutrition for your animal and then mineral supplementation and grain supplementation works around that to to have that complete picture of what your animal needs as far as the nutrition goes well that's correct you know you can adjust then the amount of supplementation that you have to do based on the type of nutrient that you have in that forage. And that can apply not only to hay, but it can apply to usually to pastures as well. And usually in a pasture situation, uh, if you have, depending where you are in the country, there are different forages can feed into your grazing system. And incorporating not only grasses, but legumes like clovers into that system will allow you to have a much better pasture quality as well for grazing those animals. So by maintaining that balance with good forage, high nutrition, and then supplementing based on what the needs of the animals will help you actually reduce that feeding bill. Because we know that you know feed is very expensive and hay is also very expensive. So you wanna make sure that when you buy a bale of alfalfa for $14, $15 for us in the South, sometimes $16, that the quality that you're getting from that hay is going to meet the requirements of the animals that you try to feed. So my old theory that good hay can supplement, not bad, but decent or below average um, grain feeding programs is a good hypothesis. Would you say, Rocky? That's correct. You know, and, 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 and having a good forage base should always be the first step uh, to develop what adjustment you need to do throughout the season. Uh, you know, depending where you are, for example, you guys in the Midwest, because you have a shorter growing season, you're going to have a longer feeding season of hay in that case. Okay. Uh, for example, for us in the South, uh, because we have a longer growing season and our, our environmental conditions are more uh, opt to grow forages year-round, we can grow almost 13, 39 forage species in the south. So if you can integrate the uh, grazing system in the summer, but also supplement that with the grazing system or cool season annual grasses in the wintertime, it really decreases the amount of hay supplementation that you have to do. 
that probably won't be the case for you guys because of the amount of snow that you have <laughs> in the cold weather might not allow you those grasses to be productive as we see in in the south. So I want to talk about pasture, but I want to go back to this kind of this hay and other things there. When you're testing it, correct me if I'm wrong, Rocky, you're testing it for RFV, which is what is RFV, just so I know my words here. Okay. Yeah. You know, one thing there is a misconception about RFV, which is the relative feed value. Okay. The relative feed value is an index used to compare the quality of foliage relative to the feed value of full bloom alfalfa. Okay. Uh, one problem with RFB is that it was developed solely for use on alfalfa. Uh, many people tried to expand its utility to other forages such as uh, grasses and corn silage. Uh, the result made most other forage type look much worse than they really were because the problem is alfalfa is considered the queen of forages and it's a legume. So you cannot compare apple to oranges, you know, legumes to forages. That doesn't work very well. Uh, so therefore, RFB should not be used only to compare only to compare forages. It should be only used to compare forages within the same species. For example, if you want to compare alfalfa RFB values, that works very well. Sometimes we use it for other legumes. But if you want to compare alfalfa to other forages, then that we need to look at what we call RFQ. RFQ is, is a similar measure. It's, it's called relative feed quality. and allows you to compare both legumes and, and grasses on the same scale. Uh, the problem with the RFQ is that I was using the uh, dry matter intake of that forage and digestibility of that forage. It wasn't taking into consideration uh, any other component. But with the RFQ, uh, you also take into consideration the dramatic intake, but also you take into consideration the protein levels, you take into consideration the energy levels in that hay to make a better comp comparison. So it's more likely the RFQ will be better reflect how the forage actually feeds and, and what is the quality of that forage. That is fascinating. So I have a question in comparison there. You you mentioned about alfalfa being considered the queen of the legume type haze. Um, a, a friend of mine was talking about having Lespedeza the other day that he was able to snag some Lespedeza hay. Can you also use RFV when you look at that? And then can you compare two types of legume haze together or no? You can. You can use uh, RFB to compare Lespedisa. Lespedisa hay is, is a great hay. Okay. It's, uh, I think it, the, uh, the quality, the, if you know a producer that knows how to manage a series Lespedisa very well, it could be a really good uh, quality hay that can replace alfalfa in some situations where you cannot get alfalfa. Uh, one thing that if I'm going to compare uh, Lespedisa to alfalfa, you might be able to use the RFB, but to be more consistent uh, across different species, maybe looking at the RFQ value might be something that you can do. And usually most labs now, when you send a sample, they will give you the, both the RFB and the RFQ value, so you'll be able to compare those as well. Okay, so that's how you evaluate that hay there. Um, do you ever, when kind of looking and judging hay here, do you ever look at 
the amount of maybe grass per the amount of forage or hay or alfalfa or or whatever in in the the hay you're getting there. So um, I guess what if you have a percentage or if you had a magical ration, what percentage would you be grass or uh, or grass or forage in that hay? What is the percentage in your mind? You know, one one thing that we need to think uh, when we look at hay. Uh, I know that a lot of people like to have a pure alfalfa, and that's usually a, a good thing if you are in a in a in a productive dairy operation that you are trying to uh, milk production is going to be your goal. Uh, but if you uh, are in a different situation, uh, having a alfalfa grass mix might be something that would be very beneficial. Uh, maybe a 60% alfalfa, 40% grass in that situation would be something that we help also with the animal. And the reason for that is because uh, remember that grass uh, in a situation like that is what we're going to consider roughage. Uh, when we look at digestion of hay in the animal, it's a small rumen, and so it's going to have those four compartments. So in the rumen, you have that microbial population, and that microbial population is going to need some fiber, okay, to be able to digest that alfalfa and and move the nutrition of those from that hay into the small intestine to be absorbed by the animal. So having some roughage in there, some fiber from the grass side is going to help that microbial population to be healthy, to be uh, thriving, and be able to, uh, to adapt very well to the uh, ration that you feed in that animal. And we do the, both. We feed grass and we feed a little bit of alfalfa in the wintertime and also we're in lactation. But at the same time, we also provide them with a little bit of grass hay to make sure that we're balancing that microbial population and having a healthy digestion in the animal. Okay, gotcha. Now that that makes sense. There, I was I've always been curious about that. So, thank you for answering that. There. And another thing to think about is also there are grasses out there, especially the cool season grasses that are very high in nutrition. Uh, like orchard grass or timothy hay or, or fescue, if it's a normal endophile fescue, it's not an endophile infected fescue, they tend to be very, very good hay also for for uh, for small ruminants because the, even though they are grasses, because they are cool season grasses, they tend to be higher quality than some of the other grasses, warm season grasses that we see in the south, like bahia grass or bromia grass. So Rocky, is there a time that that you should consider feeding just a straight alfalfa? Like um, if you're really wanting to put a, a bloom on their milk production or, um, or, or really should, should that goal of the 60, 40 alfalfa grass be more of the typical hay that you feed year round? Well, it, it depends on, on, on your production side. And I think it is, you are, on a, in a, in a really center of milk production, then probably going more to a, a pure alfalfa hay makes more sense. Uh, but also you need to be careful as well, because sometimes if you're overfeeding the animal, uh, you might be uh, putting the animal over uh, a body scar conditions that might uh, make it a little bit fat or might cause issues later with reproductive issues of breeding. So sometimes you need to be 
careful uh, on how much uh, alfalfa you're going to be feeding and when you're going to be feeding. Uh, if, if you got a dry dough, for example, then probably given uh, alfalfa in, in the wintertime when it's, it's cold and they need to have that rumen population very active to produce more heat in their body to maintain that body temperature might be something that I consider. I'm not going to consider that every day of the week, but maybe twice a day, twice a week or three times a week, just to help the animal maintain that regulation of body temperature and, and body condition that they need to survive throughout that winter on the cold conditions. Um, but it's, it's up to the producer to make sure that, that you look at those, uh, those uh, cases to actually be able to balance that system. So thinking about, so there's grass and there's alfalfa, but what other forages, and I, I love your perspective, Rocky, because you've spent some time in the Midwest and you spent some time in the South. So you have a, a very different perspective than I would ever even think about is what other types of forages are there to consider for dairy goats? Uh, you, you know, when it comes to dairy goats, it depends on where you're doing, okay? Uh like I mentioned before, there, there's a large number of forages that can be used. Uh, some of them I would call perennial forages. So that means that once you plant it, you're going to have them for many years to come if you actually manage them correctly, giving them the pro proper nutrition for them to be productive and persistent. And then also there's what we call, I would call a pinpoint short-term type of grasses, which are the annual grasses. So you can actually integrate those. If we look at uh, uh, perennial grasses, perennial cool season grasses that are adapted for production, um, most of this is going to be what we call the transition zone, which is will be Tennessee to uh, southern Ohio, and then the other they can also grow on, on the Midwest. Uh, Timothy is one of them. Uh, tall fescue. Uh, we have uh, new varieties of uh, tall fescue that are friendly. They no endophyte, the endophyte freeze that doesn't cause any issues with toxicity or covalent issues on on, on small ruminants. Uh, but also you have other species that can integrate in with those grasses, uh, red clover, white clover, that can actually help you reduce any uh, fertilization that you have to do in these grasses because clovers, remember, they are legumes. So what they do is they take uh, nitrogen from the air and convert that into forms that the, the plant can use it. That's why they are so rich in protein levels because they can actually produce their own nitrogen and utilize that nitrogen. So if you have grasses that have lower quality and you introduce either alfalfa into that system as a mix or white clover, red clover, what you're doing is creating a better forage quality for those animals to graze or even for hay production. So give you that advantage in the, in the, in the transition zone, also in the Midwest. In the South, it's a little bit different. Uh, those grasses cannot be grown, do not persist. So if we compare our production system in the South compared to the Midwest, we depend more in, in perennial grasses such as Bahia grass or Bermuda grass. Those are going to be the staple grasses that we see in our grazing production or hay production systems in the South. But with that said, alfalfa will fit into that system. Uh, people think they had the conception, uh, the misconception that we cannot grow alfalfa in the Southern United States. And yes, we can. 
uh, a lot of the work that I've done here in Mississippi State, because most of my work with Alfalfa Iowa State, I said, we can grow in the South. And University of Georgia had done a lot of work in this, and there are varieties of alfalfa that are adapted to the conditions in the South of the United States. We might get about four years of an alfalfa stand, but that's still very good uh, as a, a pure stand. But also we have done work that we know that we can integrate alfalfa into Bermuda grass and Bahia grass for either grazing or for hay production. Uh, from the hay production side, that's a game changer because we're really improving the quality of our forages. Uh, usually a good managed uh, Bermuda grass in the south might have an average of 12% crude protein, but incorporating that alfalfa in there, we might be bringing that hay to about 16, 18% crude protein uh, throughout the year. So it gives us a flexibility of having a more dynamic system to provide the nutrition that we need for those animals. Uh, with that said, also, we had the advantage here that when we get to October, uh, we can integrate what we call cool season grasses into our pastures or in a preparacy bed uh, for the winter time. Uh, that includes um, annual ryegrass. Uh, we can also use the small grains like oats, cedar rye, treaty kelly, wheat, and we can integrate those also with annual clovers. There are several species of annual clovers like a bersin clover, bolanza clover, arrowleaf clover, crimson clover, uh, and ball clover that can grow very well with these grasses. And one of the, you, the uh, main point of in, utilizing these grasses and clover combination is because usually early in the season from late December to early March, when these grasses are active, they're gonna be very nutritious, very high in quality. We're talking about 16 to 18% crude protein in those grasses. But when we get to April and our temperatures start to get very warm, the quality of those grasses tend to decrease. But by that time, those clovers are very active. So the quality that you're losing on those grasses has been compensated by the quality of those active clovers that grow all the way into late May, early June. So we're really closing the gap in any type of supplementation that we have in that system. Uh, even though we have Bermuda grass and Bermuda and Bahia grass in the summertime, they tend to be a lower quality. So we can also integrate some of the uh, uh, warm season annual grasses. Uh, such as uh, permillet, does very well for grazing goats. Uh, I like them because they are very leafy. They don't grow very tall, so you don't see a lot of the goats try to to reach on, uh, try to climb into the uh, stalks of the uh, of the uh, grass, uh, these grasses, and try to knock it down. So you don't have a lot of trampling. So really help you utilize what you plant much better. So there's different ways that you can integrate these grasses to have pretty much a year-round system in the side of the United States. I wish it would be the same situation for you guys on the north. <laughs> me too. Yeah, me too. Uh, I got a question, um, and maybe you can shed some light on this here because we had somebody from Louisiana come on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and he talked about peanut hay. Um, what uh -huh. is what is peanut hay? What? Well, yeah, what is peanut hay and what's the um, feed quality of it there? Okay, you know, peanut hay is is, is, is called perennial peanut, okay? 
It's, it's not typically the annual peanut you see planted oh. for for getting the nuts. Oh, uh, perennial, I didn't know that. Okay. That's correct. You know, perennial peanut is actually came from uh, from the tropical areas of South America and have been very well adapted to areas in Florida and the coastal areas of Mississippi, Alabama, Florida. That's where you're going to see perennial peanut being growing in large quantities. Uh, probably Florida Panhandle is a, is, is a big area of perennial peanut growing. Uh, they actually have a perennial peanut association in Florida that markets this hay. And when we talk about perennial peanut, we consider the, uh, the queen of forages in the south because it's very comparable to alfalfa when it comes to quality. Very high nutritious, 22% of uh, crude protein, uh, ranging from 60 to 65% uh uh, TDN or total digestible nutrients, which is an indication of energy. So from that point of view, it's very good, very leafy. Uh, one of the disadvantages that we have is because it's a tropical grass, it's a tropical legume, doesn't grow very well for us in other parts of the state. We have died, tried to do research here at Mississippi State, tried to bring it north, and we haven't been successful to see how they will thrive in our environment. Uh, they are more adapted also to the sandy condition that we see in those areas compared to heavy clay soils that we see uh, across uh, Alabama and Mississippi in the northern part of this, these two states. So, you know, it's a great hay. If you have be able to get it, I would highly recommend it. It's, it could be, could replace the uh, the opportunity to feed alfalfa for us in the south where sometimes alfalfa might be a limited factor uh, trying to get uh, that alfalfa to you as well. Very interesting. Um, so thinking about pastures, because like I, I don't have a large herd of goats, Rocky, and I don't have a lot of land, but I do have some pasture. Basically, I haven't ever done anything with it. Um, you know, what grows in it grows in it. And I've always wondered as a, as a small time producer, is there something I can do to enhance the pasture that I have so that they have higher quality forage. Is that something that can be done and, and like what could do that? Yeah, you can do that. You know, one thing is, you know, and, and we deal with that with a lot of producers in the South. Most of the uh, uh, goat producers in the South for either dairy or, or meat production are small producers, so a small acreage. And one thing that is, is very important is instead of having a big field where they're going to be more selectivity from the animals, uh, I would recommend try to subdivide uh, those pastures into small areas and try to develop a rotational system, okay? And when you develop a rotational system, having a couple of different forage species, you don't have to plant everything that is out there. But find a couple of forage species that are well adapted to your area and, and develop the management for those forages and then subdivide those pastures. Um, usually we recommend that you need, uh, uh, if it's a well-managed pasture, it can allocate up to six uh, goats per acre um, uh, for the rotation. So what, uh, one thing that is important in pasture is maintain them uh, in a vegetative stage. That's when they're going to be nutritious. Okay? And that's going to depend on development, developing a grazing rotation that allow those pastures to recover and be productive. 
usually if you develop that system where you can rotate goats for a small area every uh, three to five days, it allows the pasture to recover. Uh, another thing that's very important is remember that goats are what we call top grazers. They like to nibble in that top area where it is gonna be more nutritious, it's gonna be more tender. So if you know that you have different type of goats in your farm, uh, probably let's say you have some uh, dairy goats that are in high production of milk right now versus some uh, young kids or dry does, what I will suggest then is that as you develop that system, let the uh, goats that are in, in milk production go into those pastures first. They'll be able to go out and get that top uh, high quality forage from those pastures and then move them to the next system. So what I'm trying to use is what I call a first grazer and last grazer system. So my first grazer will be those high, uh, those goats with high nutrition requirements where they can get most of the nutrition out of the pastures. And I follow them with those uh, goats that are in the less nutritional category for them. So that will be the dry kits, uh, you dry those uh, that are gonna be able to require less nutrition on that. And then maintain that rotation. And one thing that is very important to is to maintain a good quality fire pasture is maintaining a grazing height for two reasons. Uh, if you remove so much forage out of that pasture, it takes longer for that uh, grass to recover. Remember that the leaves on that uh, plant are what we call the photosynthetic cells. So what they do is they're capturing that energy from the sun to produce sugars and carbohydrates to develop a strong root system and develop new growth. If we start removing that to a point that is so close to the ground, it takes longer for them to recover. Uh, we actually allow more weeds to be competitive and not having a good pasture in there. So uh, also the other thing is to consider is that when we graze in, uh, especially in the southern United States for us, parasite becomes an issue. So try to avoid parasite issues on your herd is a, is a must. So a grazing height on those pastures to about four inches is going to be very beneficial and keeping that in a rotation. Because if you keep a rotation, what you're doing is you're breaking the parasite cycle. So there is not uh, a, the opportunity for those parasites to actually become part of your herd and the, also uh, the rumen uh, system. And also remember that a lot of the larvae that this parasite develop in the, in the pastures are going to be in that uh, two inches of the grass. So if you maintain a four inches or higher height for grazing, it's going to minimize the potential for uh, those goats contracting any parasites into their system as well. Wow. Fascinating. That, that's awesome. That, that My mind is blown, Rocky. Uh, I do have a question, and I remember I'm remembering back to my agronomy 334 class at Iowa State, and we talked about grazing a little bit. But we talked about paddocks. Um, can you talk about maybe the paddock system, what it is, um, and what how it can be used in dairy goats? Well, you know, the, the paddock system is part of a grazing management strategy, okay? 
So it, what it means is if you know that you have um, five acres of land that you want to allocate to a rotational grazing system, you need to know how uh, how many animals do you have that you want to graze. And also, uh, we usually, uh, what I use is that usually a, a goat can consume about three to five percent of their body weight per day in forage dry matter. And we can use that to calculate how much forage you will need to maintain those goats in one day or three days grazing system. And then what we do is we take those numbers and I say, okay, based on this and the forage production that I'm going to have from this species, I will need X amount of acres to maintain those animals for three days. And then that's, let's say that you might need, um, if I'm going to maintain uh, 10 animals for three days, how big I'm going to have to be my area. My area means that, but let's say, for example, I need two acres. Then that two acres become your paddock size. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm going to be fencing as a paddock to have those animals for three days. So you can have a system of multiple paddocks within those five acres to actually maintain your animals, uh, depending on the nutritional needs and the forage requirement of the animals or the uh, dairy goat species that you are having in your farm. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. We have developed a spreadsheet that is coming up, coming up this year and as an extension publication that will have a, a Excel calculator embedded on it that will allow you to utilize that to determine how big my paddocks have to be, how many acres do I need for X amount of goats, and be able to make those decisions. Awesome. That will be a huge resource for those that do want to raise their goats on pasture. Another question on pastures I have is, so we often say that goats are really good at wasting hay. Actually, I don't say I know because I just cleaned a bunch of it up this weekend. Um, with that being said, would you consider the goats on pasture to be browsers or grazers? Well, you know, goats uh, prefer browsing okay. or consuming what we call woody plants or shrubs. Okay. Okay. But goats also are grazer and would graze grasses, legumes, and weeds in the pasture in the absence of low pressure of woody plants. And we will use both. In our farm, we have areas that are wooded. And we're blessed for that uh, because when you get in the spring, uh, all these wooded areas will have all types of shrubs, putting new growth, new leaves, and they love that. But remember that as you graze those, uh, you browse those throughout the year, uh, they stop producing in those, those low areas. So most of the, the uh, production of those shrubs or trees are going to be in the upper part. And sometimes goats have limitation on reaching those areas. So in that situation, then become more grazers. And that happens in our farm. We use those areas that are wooded early in the spring. But also we're lucky that our farm has ton, tons of Cerisia lespedisa. So when they transition from the browsing area uh, that has not recovered, they go into lespedisa pastures. So we're maintaining a balance between those. Uh, we want to make sure that we actually maintaining 
the optimum forage production either through browsing or grazing for the dairy goats to be able to get the best nutrition possible. Gotcha. Okay. I've always wondered that. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. And and one thing that you need to think too is that, you know, nutrient requirements, uh, the goats are going to differ based on on age, state of production, weight, breed type, and the environment. So in order to maintain uh, milk production and health, uh, goats and she- and goats m- m- need to be a fed a balanced diet. Uh, so in the southeast, forages make up the majority of the daily diet of these animals. So, so it's, it's, it's important that, that you utilize those resources as much as you can in your farm to to move your hair forward. So a question for you, Rocky. Um, <clears throat> in thinking about, I, I, still staying on the forages thing, what time of, I'm guessing this probably depends on where you live in the country, but is it too late now to like start thinking about seeding or planting things for next spring um, if you want to enhance the pastures that you have, or is that something that can be done early in the year next year, or does it just kind of depend where you live? Well, well it, that can depends on where you live. Uh, for example, in the South, if you want to enhance something for the winter time and be able to get the best nutrition uh, and extend that grazing season as much as you can, we, rec- we recommend to plant these cool season annual grasses usually uh, from September to late October, depending where you live in Mississippi. Uh, usually, uh, if you're in the northern part of the state where our, we have cooler conditions compared to the coast, we're trying to start planting earlier. But if you're in South Mississippi, for example, in South Alabama, then you have a larger window planted almost until late October, early November. Uh, if you're in the Midwest, it'd be very difficult to go ahead and plant anything right now. But in the Midwest, one thing that you can think about is springtime or planting something. And this might be a good idea for, for example, some legumes, is you can do some frost seeding. Uh, sometime in, in late February, early March, uh, when it's still snow out there, you can do what we call a frost seeding. Once the snow starts to melt and those temperatures start to grow, uh, to go up, you can see some of those uh, seeds that you put out there start to germinate and get established. So it, it depends uh, on, on the environmental conditions, on the species that you try to focus on, and the location that you are, lo- you are for, for using these this different management practices. Good. Thank, thank you. I, I wondered about that. So. so, Rocky, if I were to go and I had, you know, a nice plot of, say, four acres and I wanted to go seed it for pasture, what do you recommend that mix look like in general? Obviously, it's going to look different from where you are in the country. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to vary depending on where you're at. But one thing that I always tell producers is, uh, we know that the fertilizer prices are very high. Okay? <laughs> so one thing is before before you start doing any establishment, uh, one thing that you need to do, and you can work with your county extension office, is take a soil sample. Determine what are the uh, levels of, of nutrition that you have in that soil, what is your, your phosphorus, your potassium, your, what are the reserve of nitrogen that you might have, but also pH. pH is one of the most important things 
when it comes to soil uh, testing because uh, if you don't have a, a, a good pH, and what I'm calling a good pH is something that is uh, from 6.0 or above, uh, it will impact how much the plants will be able to utilize the nutrients that are in the soil, but also will impact how those foliages get established. Uh, for legumes specifically, you need to have a pH of 6 or above. Uh, so when you establish a new pasture, I always like to see forest diversity. Uh, maybe having a grass in there, but also incorporating a legume uh, with that system. Okay, So I like to see that when you do that mix, you have at least a 70% grass versus a 30% uh, legume. And the reason for that is because, remember, legumes can cause bloat in small animals. So if you have less than 30 to 40% legume in your pasture, you should be okay for establishing that system uh, and be able to have a successful grazing. Uh, and also making sure that you are not overseeding a pasture used with clovers. Uh, that's when we start seeing issues with bloating, losing animals. And also, once those, those pastures are established in that blend, uh, also it's very important that you transition animals very easily from feeding hay to grasses. A lot of people might say, well, I'm going to take the animals out of hay and put it to the pastures. That's a big mistake. You want to do a slow transition. And remember that the reason that we're trying to do a slow transition is we trying to uh, adapt the rumen population and microbes in the rumen to that change on diet. And if we do an abrupt change in diet, the rumen population is not ready to handle that. That's when we start seeing problems, especially with legumes and bloats. So maybe if you have a pasture that already be established grass and legume, and you're going to transition to grazing, uh, putting the animals in there for an hour at the beginning and increasing that time might be something that is beneficial. So you're giving time for that rumen population and microbe be ready to handle that change. So I would not put animals into complete grazing of uh, grass legume system for about two weeks. I use a two-week period to make that transition and make sure that the animals is conditioned to handle that situation. Okay. That, oh, wow. wow. That's very interesting. That's, yes. that's deep. <laughs> but it, it explains so many things over the years that I've probably, you know, looking back on that I've probably messed up because I just didn't, I just didn't understand. I would call it probably a benign ignorance, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much. Yeah. Um, what about, it's one of my final questions is buying hay. So I go to like a hay sale or I, maybe I go to my hay guy and I'm looking at hay here. Do you have any recommendations or some resources to point to, to help me determine maybe I, I can't send it in for a test or something like that. And I have to buy it on the spot. Do you have any recommendations on how to do that? Or what's, what's your general sense when you're looking for hay for your, your farm? You know, when when we're looking at hay, is is something that that I, I try to pay a lot of attention. You know, there's a lot of people out there that advertise hay. Um, 
and they will tell you, well, fertilize hay, what that means. Do you fertilize at the beginning of the year, but you're cutting that hay in, in July, August, 60, 90 days later. So, you know, getting to know your local sources is very important. And it's going to vary depending where you're in the state. There are some, there are some uh, places on, on the Internet that the, the hay exchange might be one of those that you can look at different type of hay. But I always ask the producer first is how, how the hay was fertilized how long it was cut after fertilization, because we recommend that to have a good quality hay that is good in protein, it's good, it's not going to be so much high in fiber that the animal is not going to get so much out of it. Uh, you need to be in that 30 to th uh, 28 to 35 day cutting system, depending on where the conditions, and that's what we have arranged in there. But if somebody's cutting hay on, on a 30 day interval, it's been fertilized after each cut of hay with appropriate nutrients, uh, you might be able to see that you have a good leaf-to-stem ratio in there. You want something that have a lot of leafy material instead of stemming material. Uh, you know, goats like that leafy material that you're going to find in the hay. They, they're going to go for that. You're going to see more refusal if you have that high concentration of stems uh, compared to the amount of leafy material that you have in there. You know, and, and you know, some people might use use visual evaluation um, of does it look moldy? Does it look uh, wet? Does it look dry? Does it look green? And, and sometimes those are good do uh, observation that you can do, but it's not going to give you a good information about the nutritional value. So I always ask the producer. Uh, do you have a hay test? Do you got it hay tested? Can you tell me or not? Uh, and I like using the philosophy is that I rather lose fifteen dollars and get in a hay tested before I buy it than spending a thousand dollars and the goats are not gonna eat it. Yeah, and, amen. And, and, you know, I as a forage specialist, I experienced that as well. You know, where we we think that the producer that we that we uh, Trust and have do a good management of the hay, and sometimes might not be that case. I'm not gonna say everybody's like that, but having uh, some information that shows you the nutritive value of the hay is gonna be very important. Awesome. Uh, you know, one thing that that sometimes we need to think about is uh, this year, for example, we have very wet conditions, and sometimes you might have hay that might be moldy. And that could be a problem. And the reason for that is because more hay can have what we call aflatoxin. Uh, and aflatoxin is a byproduct of more growth in wet and poorly harvested hay. Uh, once produced, aflatoxin does not go away. So it's going to stay in the hay even if the moles die. So when you have aflatoxin contaminated hay and you feed it to your goats, uh, you may uh, have many health problems and performance problems as a result of this. Uh, one thing is that uh, aflatoxin can suppress the immune system, uh, so allowing the goat to develop diseases that it would not likely have uh, succumbed to if they had the aflatoxin contaminated uh, hay uh, that had been fed to them. Um, aflatoxin can also passing to the milk by dairy goats. So young goats are more susceptible to the effects of aflatoxin 
although all ages can be affected as well. So in animals, uh, aflatoxin can cause liver damage, can decrease reproductive performance, reduce the milk production, uh, can cause death in uterus, uh, tumors, birth defects, and lower the immune system as a function. So it's, you know, sometimes it's very important that you pay attention to the type of hay that you buy, both visually and chemically, to determine what is the best hay for your operation. That's deep, but awesome information to know. Laura, uh, any other final questions for Rocky? Um, just just one. Okay. A lot of the hay that I have for sale around here, you'll see some of it advertised in small bales. You'll see some of it advertised in big round bales. You'll see some of it advertised in the um, great big square bales. From a a preservation standpoint, is there one type of of baling that is better for dairy goats that should be considered or is it just basically what's easier to handle on your own farm well i guess it depends on the uh, on the producer preference but if you look at um efficiency and less waste uh, i prefer this small square bells uh, they're easy to handle uh, they can be fed more easily uh, some producers produce like this large square bales as well. It depends where you add and what kind of equipment you have to handle those bales well. well I know some producers that use round bales. Uh, one thing with the round bales that can be uh, used very easily is you actually feeding them uh, little by little. But if you take a, a bale of hay of a round bale and put it out there in the field where you're feeding your goats and it stay there for a long time, especially in the wintertime with rain uh, coming in, uh, moisture coming in, you might see start to see that that hay get a little bit soggy. So from that point of view, goats are going to have more refusal. So you might not be getting the, the full benefit of, of a, a large square bell in those type of situations. Uh, so if you have a large square bell, but actually you're going in there and you're taking layers and feeding that from that point of perspective, sometimes you might get a better return on the investment with the, uh, the amount of force that you get compared to the price that you pay for a small square bill. So it depends on the, on the uh, equipment that you have available for handling those bills, but also what is the easiest way to feed in your farm. Makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. Rocky, I don't have any more questions. Laura, any more questions? I no, we... I don't think so. I'm just, this is one of those episodes that I'm going to have to go back and listen to again myself after I edit it and take more notes. I, I, I'm just blown away. This has just been fantastic. Would you say you're going to chew on it or ruminate on it? I'm going to ruminate on it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> well, thank Rocky, you so much, Rocky, yes. for being on. Yes. No, this... thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, Rocky, you have something you wanted to tell us about the webinar series you put on right through Mississippi State, right? That's correct. You know, we 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 have been very active. Uh, we have a small ruminant team here that that includes a, a small ruminant veterinarian, uh, our small ruminant extension specialist. We have a small ruminant uh, reproduction uh, person on the team, and myself as the force team. So so we have a really good team that have worked very hard. Uh, this past year to develop a webinar series. And most of the webinars that we did this fall are already archived. 
in, in our extension website, but also we have several webinars coming uh, this uh, spring as well, and they're being advertised in our um, Facebook page, Mississippi Forges. But also, you know, I think these educational programs are not only for producers that are very well knowledge, have a lot of knowledge on the gut industry, but also beginners. And, and you know, we can always learn something. Even though I, I, I love working with forages every time that I work with a producer or I start serving my own goats, I start to learn something and, and you know, wondering new things and, and new ways and management practice that we need to implement to be more sustainable and be more successful as well. Uh, Remember that there you go breeders have the greatest need for forage and feed information because it's a long-term milk production versus a short-term meat production. So you need to choose forage species that are adapted to the soil type and environmental condition of your area. So contact your local county extension to get information related to varieties, uh, seeding rates, establishment, fertilization and grazing management, either for hay production or use grazing that you can implement in your farm. And also make sure that you get a salt test to determine the necessary nutrients needed to ensure productivity and persistence. And also test your hay uh, to know your nutritional value and determine feed strategies that help you maximize productivity on your farm. Awesome. Sounds Rock. like a great wrap up. Where can um, the where people find you on Facebook or your farm page as well to find out more information about your creamery or what you're doing uh, with Mississippi State? Okay, you can go to Mississippi Forages and Facebook. Uh, that's also uh, our Facebook page. And we try to put a lot of videos and information in there for the live industry. But also, if you want to know more about our farm, is uh, Coles Rich Farms and uh, Facebook as well. Awesome. Awesome. As listeners, as always listeners, thank you for spending some time with us uh, this week. Um, we enjoy the time with you. If you like us, tell a friend. If not, uh, give us some feedback. We always like feedback. Uh, Rocky actually came to us recommended from a listener. Um, so thank you to said listener who reached out to us on that. So give us some feedback if you have some interesting guests um, for us. And since this will be uh, the episode that comes out right before Christmas, we wish all of you a very Merry Christmas if you choose to celebrate. Um, wonderful time with your family and friends. And uh, let's let's bring out 2021 on a positive note and hope for a better year in 2022. We appreciate all of you guys. Thank you so very much for listening to us and have a great week.